Welcome to Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith and college football podcast after week two of the college football season. I'm George Schroeder. And I'm Brad Edwards, and we're about to talk some college football. Week two is in the books. We're going to preview week three, and we're going to do that in just a little bit with our good friend, Chris Lowe, uh, ESPN senior writer. But before we get to Chris, I just want to thank, uh, as you mentioned, George, our presenting partner, Subsplash. Subsplash allows your church community to access messages, resources, and even gift your church from one place. It also equips church leaders to connect with their congregation in ways you never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a church software. It brings people together, empowers giving, fosters discipleship, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to book a demo at subsplash.com SBC. When you use that link, you'll get a special discount for churches, but you have to use that link for the discount. Again, that's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash S-B-C. So George, introduce our good friend. Both of us have known this guy for a long time, and so it's it's uh, exciting to have Chris with us today. Man, Chris Lowe, uh, senior writer for ESPN.com, covered college football for a lot of years, has covered, still covering college football. Out of SEC country, but covers it nationally. Uh, and and Chris, I guess I should just go ahead and full disclosure, right? Graduate of the University of Tennessee, and I think you grew up in South Carolina, but almost almost North Carolina. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charlotte Charlotte suburb. That's, if I if I remember correctly, that's right, guys. Yeah, I, I was born in St. Charles, Missouri, right outside St. Louis, uh, as a youngster, and then we moved to the Carolinas. My dad got a job there. Uh, right across the border from Charlotte in, in the South Carolina, Rock Hill. I went to you know junior high, high school there and never lived in Tennessee, but went to school at Tennessee and um, not been here ever since, but most of the last two plus decades, my family, my kids grew up here and we've, uh, we've just decided to stay. I could have moved to a lot of places and thought about moving back to Charlotte with the SEC network being there at one point, but um I'm glad we stayed because we really like living in this area. Well, it's a beautiful part of the country, and there aren't many places where people take college football more seriously, so it's not a bad place to be for that reason too. So, uh, Chris, um, first of all, week two, um, and I am remiss in not asking, where were you yesterday, Saturday? We're recording this Sunday night, and um, and I, I should have asked you that before the show in our extensive pre-show preparation. But I didn't. <laughs> no, that's okay. You know, I actually got to do something, guys, that um, I had been working on for a while and was looking forward to a little bit off the beaten path. I was actually in Greenville, North Carolina. Marshall played ECU. Um, only the sixth time that Marshall had played at East Carolina since the tragic plane crash in 1970. And I went back to do a piece on those two schools. You know, they'll forever be linked. And so many of the players from that 70 ECU team came back to pay tribute uh, to Marshall. Uh, Red Dawson was there. First time he'd been back on campus since that 70 game. Of course, he was the the Marshall assistant who did not get on the plane that night and went recruiting instead. If you've seen the movie, We Are Marshall, he was a central uh, character. His, you know, his character was a central figure in that film. And boy, what a treat it was to, to be around those people and, hear the stories and, and still, gosh, you know, almost 53 years later, it just tugs at your heart. Um, 
that just awful, awful tragedy. And yet through it, it's brought two fan bases and two schools and, and, and two football programs together. And uh, the respect that uh, you see, even though you're out there knocking heads with guys for 60 years between those schools, you know, more than a half century later endures. Well, Chris, that, that type of story obviously is what makes college football special. Obviously, it's a, it's a tragedy. We're not celebrating the tragedy, but those types of things, um, so many of them exist and just add so much of a rich history to the sport that um, all too often today is overlooked because of our extensive focus on the national championship race and uh, and, and teams in the the kind of the, the the caliber, the category of ECU and Marshall don't get as much attention as they probably should. Um, and and all of that said, um, I'm, I'm now going to be guilty of it myself because we're going to turn our attention to week two. And um, and I mean, where where else to start um, except for the upset? And you have to call it an upset in, in Tuscaloosa where. Texas took down Alabama. Uh, it's, it's not often that Alabama loses under Nick Saban. It's less often that they lose at home. And it's even less often that they lose when they clearly were not the better team. And, and I, I, I think anybody who watched that game had to come away thinking that Texas was the better team, deserved to win that game. And so uh, let, let's start with the Texas side, Chris. What, what, is, what is your biggest takeaway for the Longhorns and what we're going to see from them moving forward. Obviously, this being a big underdog in the situation, a very different situation from what they will see the rest of the season in the Big 12. You know, guys, I spent some time last preseason with Sark going into to 22. So not this year, but last preseason. And, and I came away from that meeting feeling as if he felt like they were a year away. And you know, Ewers gets hurt in that Bama game last year. In the first quarter, he played great. Uh, Bama squeaks it out. So I felt like this year Texas had a chance to really make a move. I know I talked to a lot of people in and around that Alabama program last week about this game. They were really concerned when they watched tape and saw the skill level on both sides of the ball, but especially on offense, the way those guys could get down the field, Ewers' ability to throw the ball. Uh, Alabama was not completely healthy in the defensive backfield. So they they knew that they were going to have to play a football to win and not turn it over and and that's that's sort of what turned that game around as as well as Texas played when Alabama started turning it over the the whole complexity of that game changed and then let's not forget this Ewers had at least one maybe two touchdown passes dropped in that game uh, or or Bama could or or Texas could have had a bigger lead so listen I'm not going to get caught up into that Texas is back we've heard that now for a a lot of years, <laughs> but I do. Think, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> I do think, though, that Sark has the program at a place from a personnel standpoint, uh, a quarterback, you know, who's played now on some big stages and the depth. I think that's the thing. They've got more depth than they probably had. They're going to be able to chance. They're going to have a chance come November to be in that conversation to be a playoff team. That, that's a big thing to say too, by the way, because we because we've seen Texas have some early season success in the past, and and people have declared Texas is back, and then they have sort of fallen apart. I think maybe there's probably still a little bit of I don't know if it's skepticism or but wait and see. That said, I don't. First of all, nobody had beaten Alabama at home by double digits. And I know that turned into a, a, a really great rock'em sock'em robot type of game in, in the in the fourth quarter. But 
Texas not only took every punch and then threw threw you know haymakers back. Texas basically dominated most of the game, even when Alabama would come come and throw a punch of their own. Um, I I don't think we've seen anything like that, other than um, maybe what Joe Burrow did to, to Alabama. Um, uh, what three or four years ago? I guess back back in 2019 when LSU came to town. We haven't seen anything like that at home, really on the road a whole lot either. But certainly not at home by Alabama. And so, and I'm not. We can get to, to Alabama in a second here, but I was. It felt like a different Texas team than we've seen in any of those years that we've talked about, even when they've had this early season success under several different coaches. I think George is more about Texas than his Bama, as I look back on that game because. You talk to people all over the college football world. I mean, going into that game, even before the season, and it was, hey, let, let's see if Texas can go on the road and win a big game against a really good team with that's recruited. I mean, you look at Alabama's recruiting the last few years; they've recruited as well or better than anybody. Now, granted, they don't have a first round draft pick at quarterback, which I think that's the big difference in Bama now and what we've seen in the past. But everybody wondered, hey, can can Sark and the Horns go into Alabama early in the season in what was just a unbelievably hostile environment for any visiting team and win that caliber of game? And I think we have our answer. It wasn't fluky. You know, it wasn't like that the game changed on a couple fluky type plays. I remember that Brad, you remember that old miss game at fifteen when Freeze went there and, yeah. and beat him and he had to tip the long tip pass and a fumble I was about off. to say something about that game. Yeah. Go ahead, finish that's right. up, and, and, and then I'll say it. That's not to take away. Ole Miss won that game, but there were some fluky moments in that game. In, in this game, let's just let's just say it. Texas was a better football team yep. from start to finish. And I don't think anybody on either side of the equation would disagree with that. They were a better team and played better in that game. There have been a lot of previous – okay, there have not been a lot of previous losses for Nick Saban is what I was trying to say. But in almost all of the other previous losses, it's a handful, right, since his run began, um, it's felt a little fluky. Um, it hasn't felt like the opponent really matched up well. And Texas matched up well and overmatched them in several spots, which was a little weird for me. Um, just it's it's jarring to see. But I think you're right. It's more Texas – uh, Brad, what was your big takeaway from from that? Well, so before we leave Texas, I just want to throw this note out, which I've actually been tracking for many years, and it becomes more and more amazing every year that goes by that the streak continues. But I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this. Going back to 2010, so this is the season after Colt McCoy left. So after right. after Texas lost to Alabama in that national championship game, Every season since then, up until now, Texas has lost at least two conference games to teams other than Oklahoma, right? I mean, it's no secret that Oklahoma overall has had the better of Texas over that span. But if you take away all the the losses to Oklahoma, forget Oklahoma, just look at the rest of the Big 12, teams that Texas clearly out-recruits year after year, has more talent than... Right. They have lost to at least two of those teams every season since 2010. So, Chris, is this the year that streak ends? Well, I can promise you this. You go to the 40 acres right now and talk to those fans. Uh, if they don't capitalize on this type of win and they lose to a, a couple 
Big 12 teams that quote-unquote aren't in the upper tier of the Big 12, there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth there in the Capitol. Uh, I can tell you that. And you're exactly right, though, Brad. That's the thing that's been so maddening about Texas is that they, they seem to have those, can you believe they lost this game type of games, performances. So we've all done this long enough, all three of us, that the dumbest thing you can do in sports, especially in college football, is to write something down in blood two weeks into the season because it doesn't work that way. I do think this is the best Texas team Sark has had. I think it's the most talented team. I do think that they are good enough and deep enough to be a team, as I said earlier in November, that it's at least in that conversation for the playoff. But that's still something they're going to have to go out and prove. they got to sustain that over the next couple months. And, and they, hey, how do they deal now? They're a top, what, top five, top six team? How do they deal uh, with being a team now that everyone's going to circle and say, all right, this is a team that, that we're going to get ready for, and this is a team we got to beat if we're going to make our name? Uh, all right, listen, I agree with that. But speaking of writing things in blood, what should we write about Alabama after that after that loss at home? You know, by 10, Texas pretty much controlled the game. What, what do we write? You mentioned earlier, Chris, that you didn't think that it was um, – I, I don't know. You, you said it was more about Texas than Alabama. We're going to have people write and think pieces about uh, Bama's dynasty, which, by the way, Georgia's already taken care of that. But you know, I think I've heard that Bama before, s- though, George. I think I've heard yeah. people oh, no. talk about after Bama's that old Miss after the after those you freeze old Miss teams beat them a couple years, right? Including the sort of the fluky uh, pass play that you and Brad were talking about a minute ago. No, no question. And um, I've had former colleagues that have written those things and then taken abuse from people <laughs> for years on that. And, and it is what it is. But what should we take away? What do you take away from this Alabama team? I'm, I'll be honest with you. Frankly, I think they'll get better. I think they'll figure out how to use Jalen Mil- Milrow or they'll get somebody else. But quarterback was a big problem for them, even though he made some nice plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's the big thing, sort of figuring out a way that they can use him and put him in positions where he can utilize his skills the best. He's not a, he's not a guy that's going to stand back there in the pocket and beat you. Nick Saban knows that. Tommy Reese knows that. And this this was the first his first real test. I do think they will evolve. The one thing Nick's always done is he's evolved and he's adapted. And I think they will do that with how they use Jalen or if it's somebody else at quarterback. But what I would write in blood is simply this. Be careful at suggesting that Nick Saban's lost his fastball. Be really careful. Because as soon as you think he has, he'll sneak one in there under your chin about 99 miles an hour. <laughs> that's just that's just the way he is. That's the way he's wired. Um, and he enjoys doing yeah, it too. Not, do do I think do I think this Alabama team is as talented as the 20 national title team, the 2012? No, no, it's a different type of team. Uh, it's certainly not a quarterback driven team. And I think this is the first year, uh, guys, that. Somebody other than a first-round draft pick, or, or let's say this, someone other than a current starter in the NFL has taken a meaningful snap at quarterback for Alabama since, what, 2015? Hurts yeah. was there in 16. Jake Coker, yeah. Um, and then you go to Mack and then Bryce. And think about that standard. Think about that run yeah. at quarterback. They don't. Those guys aren't running around. And, and Jalen Waddle's not running around. And Jerry Judy's not running around, and Devontae Smith's not running around. So, so that quarterback slash receiver run that they had, that's not the way this team is is wired. 
So they're going to have to learn and going back to your word, George, they're going to have to evolve and adapt and figure out ways to win games when they're not scoring 40 plus points and throwing the football over the field. I thought the most disappointing thing of the night for Alabama is they didn't protect better than the offensive line. Uh, that was that unit was one they felt like would be their most improved unit on the field. And, and it still might be, but they've got to get better in, in all areas, not only protecting, but running the football when they need to. Uh, but this is a different Alabama team. And if they're going to be a playoff caliber team, which again, I don't, Ever doubt Nick Saban, having seen what he's done, the, the run that <laughs> that program's been on ever since he, he landed there in, in Tuscaloosa in 07, they're going to have to sort of do it in a different fashion than they've done the last few years. Yeah. So, Chris, let, let me let me go <laughs> no, back. No margin no margin for error now. Oh, absolutely. Because it's going to be hard to see. It's hard to see a two-loss no. Alabama team get in the playoff way, unless George, it's two losses with a win over Georgia in the right. SEC title and, and game. I love right. you love we're already talking scenarios second weekend of the season that, well, if you lose but this that's Alabama. game, if you don't lose – but no, you're right. If they were to lose, say, to, I don't know, a, a team that finishes highly ranked, Tennessee or LSU, but but still got into the, national, uh, the SEC championship game and beat an unbeat number one ranked Georgia team, then they might slip in. But other Maybe, than that, yeah. no, I, I don't think there's much margin for error. Right. So this is what takes me back to that 2015. I can't believe how many times this this game has already come up in this podcast, but I think it's relevant because you're going to hear people this week are going to bring that up and they're going to say, well, that year Alabama lost at home early in the season. They bounced back. And the other common thread, you just brought it up, that was the last time they had a starter that was not a, a future NFL guy. Uh, Jake Coker was the QB that year. He actually didn't start that game. That was the only game that season he didn't start. He came in in, in relief and almost let him back. But the, the two things I would say that are very different about that 2015. Uh, number one, as you mentioned, that was a fluky game. Like Alabama had five turnovers to none by Ole Miss, and they still almost won it at the end. And they had two fumbles on kickoff returns that gave Ole Miss short fields. It was just a weird game. You couldn't help come away thinking Alabama was the better team. They just didn't win the game. That was not the case against Texas, as as we've mentioned. The other thing is this. Alabama, to win the SEC and get to the playoff in 2015, did not have to beat the best team in college football, which is what they'll have to do this year. They will have to beat Georgia and be the SEC champion in order to get into that playoff. And the team that I've seen, not just against, against Texas, but even in week one um, against Middle Tennessee, the score looked really good. But to me, this looks like the same team that I've seen the last two years. The only difference is they don't have Bryce Young, right? But, but I, I still see the same holes in the defense, giving up big plays, not being able to get pressure on the other team's quarterback in meaningful fourth quarter situations. The offensive line is not protecting all that well. They're not establishing the run. Um, to me, this is 2021, 2022, Alabama, different coordinators, but the big difference once I, like I said before, this time they don't have Bryce Young to bail them out. Yeah. Uh, I, <clears throat> hey, so I, at the risk of us doing this, I, like Al from Dadeville would have said on the old Feinbaum show, I think we're about to be too full of Bama here on this podcast. <laughs> um, so if, if y'all don't mind, and, and we can go back to this if you want, because I know we got a lot of listeners who care a lot about Alabama one way or the other. They're, they're polarizing, right? What is the other 
big takeaway from week two, understanding, not going to write things in blood, not going to use indelible ink, whatever. But there were a couple of couple more events that happened. And, and we do have to get actually to an off-field event before we get out of the, the first half of this podcast too, which is, is not going to be a pleasant thing to talk about, but we at least need to hit it. But in the game action from the weekend, what struck you guys as like either um, significant or surprising or maybe just significant? I mean, I'll start. I mean, this is probably the first two weeks. Everybody's talking right now about a quarterback out West who might win the Heisman Trophy for the second straight year. I tell you guys, the guy I like out West, a quarterback, is not so much Caleb Williams. Michael Penix Jr. is the real deal. Hmm. He is a From really UW, good yep. football player. He's smart. He can, he can beat you in a number of different ways. Uh, the way they use him, the way they have, have used him and sort of built that offense around what he can do. Uh, it, it's funny when you look at the quarterback. I, I should say funny. It, to me, it's intriguing. When you look at the quarterbacks in the Pac-12, the last year, by the way, I guess of the Pac-12, across the board, there are so many guys out there at that position who are mm-hmm. uh, who are just you know, football players. And, and he's one, as, as you watch that conference sort of play out and those teams play each other, and everyone's going to talk about Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams is a special player. But I wouldn't sleep on Michael Penix Jr. He, he, as I was looking sort of this this morning at my, my Heisman poll and who's done what to this point, Grant, we have a small body of work. Uh, he's, to me, has been about as impressive as anybody. And you don't have um, all three Colorado Buffaloes. So Deion Sanders is online too uh, for you. But uh, uh, by the way, because being in all seriousness, Shador Sanders – suddenly jumps into that list of I mean, the, the quarterbacks in the Pac-12 are deep, which is one reason why I think the Pac-12 is really, really, really deep. And I, I don't know that I'm going to put Colorado up there with the league contenders yet, but they continue to surprise me. Um, not not that I, so much that I was surprised that they beat a Nebraska team, and they're going to beat Colorado State this week, even though College Game Day and Fox's Big Noon Kickoff are both going to show up and like you know fight it out like News Team Assemble from Anchorman. But, um, the, you know, it gets a lot harder when they face uh, – they go to Oregon, then USC comes to town and stuff like that. But there is the Pac-12 maybe the deepest league in football? I, I don't mean – I don't know yet if they've got an elite team. Maybe they do. Maybe they got a couple. But is it the deepest league in football? I'll throw that open to both of you guys because I think it might be. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go. And I, I, I think you could make a really good case um, that – this is the best the Pac-12 has been since the college football playoff started uh, back in the 2014 season. And, you know, the Pac-12, as most people know, hasn't had a team in the playoff since 2016. It's been quite a drought, and this is obviously the last year of this four-team playoff model. Um, as good as they are top to bottom, I would love to see them get back into the playoff. But because of the depth, look, I mean, we've all watched it for however many years now. We have yet to see that selection committee reward a two loss team putting one in over a one loss team because the two loss team played a more difficult schedule. And, and I mean, this is the first time in this era that we could say that, you know what, there's actually such a thing as schedule strength in the PAC 12 and it's not coming because of non-conference games. And I, I think that's where it really gets interesting is because USC, 
you know, ever since kind of sleepwalking through the first half of week zero, um, they've turned it on. And this looks like the type of team that people, you know, kind of hyped USC to be all summer long. And yet you look around the rest of the league and, you know, you mentioned the quarterbacks, Chris, and I see the type of, of schedule out there where USC better bring their A game almost every single week in that league. Because if, if you have one week with three turnovers or for whatever reason, you're just kind of sleepwalking, loss is going to find you at least once. And if it finds you twice, you're probably out of the college football playoff. And that goes not just for USC, but for everybody in that league. Go look at USC's close to the season. I think they've got the toughest close to the season in college football. Uh, they play like, I want to say, seven straight weeks without a bye. And, and in that stretch are all the teams that you just mentioned. But, no, I think what, what Dion has done, or I guess I should say Coach Prime, right? Isn't that what he's asked to be called? Um, oh, what, yes, What he's must. done to me, though, is just all that's done is it's made the Pac-12 uh, it, it's taken that what you, with its resurgence or renaissance or whatever, because I thought it would be good. I thought the Pac-12 would be good this year. I, th- I thought they were three or four really good teams with seasoned quarterbacks. Um, I did not know truthfully what to expect from Colorado. And, and I knew that Travis Hunter was could play anywhere in the country. I knew Shador Sanders had been really good at his previous stop. I didn't know how that would translate in year one, but now that we're two weeks in, you know, clearly they are part of what has made in my mind, the PAC 12, one of these stories in college football uh, through two weeks, you know, is, is the way the buffs have played and, and, and gosh, there's so much fun to watch. I mean, we, we talk about, uh, you know, football, all the rules changes and they're going to, you know, we're going to not stop the clock anymore after first downs, all these goofy rules and, you know, to me, it's about entertainment, and I love watching the way they play. Travis Hunter's playing hundred plus snaps every game. Sanders, they've got, you know, they haven't been afraid to play young guys. Uh, all these new faces, he completely overhauled the roster. Uh, I, I've never, you know, having cut my teeth covering football in the SEC, there were so many years there where really the Pac-12 was irrelevant. Yeah, with, with the exception of maybe one or two years, or. or a couple players, boy, right now, I think uh, unless there is real carnage, Brad, like you guys were talking about where they just beat up on each other, this to me in all the years of the playoff has been in place, I think there's a real chance that a Pac-12 team gets in there and has a chance to do damage. Because you knew in 16, Washington had no – they had no chance. You know, that's yep. – that's, and that's – remember, that's the game where, where Nick fires Lane after the game – because they were so sloppy on offense, but defensively they just smothered Washington. They could have played 20 quarters. I'm not sure Washington could have scored more points than they did. So you never thought they really had a chance in that game. I think this year there's there's three or four teams in the Pac-12, depending on health, how things shake out, how much carnage that's in that conference that would have a chance to do some damage in a four-team playoff. All right, we're, we're, we're just about out of time for the first half. We got a, two or three things we got to hit kind of quickly, I think, sort of lightning round stuff. First, um, um, SEC, I just want to note this SEC three and six against Power Five non conference opponents so far this year. Um, and that, that, that three came after they got uh, Mississippi State to beat Arizona in overtime at home in, in Starkville, and then Auburn. Um, beat Cal, but scoring only 14 points, and Cal left a bunch of points on the board. Um, so 
congrats to Auburn and Mississippi State, but I'm not. It's just not not great stuff. It hasn't been a great start for the SEC, and other leagues have gone through this in other years. But I don't. We'll have to see if, as the season goes along, if that non-conference sort of um, tough start ends up affecting sort of how people think about the SEC. My guess is it probably doesn't. And if Georgia goes and wins the national title, then all things will be fine for the SEC, but we'll see. So um, I just want to note that. Um, And I don't want to overreact on anything here, but it is week two. Miami rolls over Texas A&M. Quick thoughts on that from both you guys. I'll start first. I was in College Station two weeks ago. spent two days there. I was – that that was as shocking as anything that that, that A&M – Watching that team practice for two days and seeing the talent level, they would give up almost 50 in a half-field stadium there. And I know Miami's better under Mario this year, and they got some speed. But I, I did not see that coming. I knew it would be a hard game. But to give up almost 50 points in week two, uh, I still think Connor Wigman's a real deal at quarterback. I think they'll score a lot of points with Bobby there. But, boy, if they don't fix that defense, guys, uh, there's more losses coming there in Aggieland. Yeah, I feel the same way, Chris. Like, I, I wasn't surprised Miami won. We picked that game last week, and I, I took Miami. But them giving up as many points, I should say A&M, giving up as many points as they did, that was that was the surprising thing. If you had, if you had told me that A&M would score, um, was it in the low 30s, I, I believe it was, um, I would have thought they would have won the game. So, um, yeah, that, that is a major concern, though, for A&M moving into, I don't know what year number we are now for Jimbo Fisher, but obviously he's been taking some heat lately. And um, if, if that's indicative of what A&M is going to be this season, then it's going to be another long year for them in the SEC. And then on the flip side, uh, for Mario and Miami, um, if that's indicative of what they are, then uh, they've got a chance to make some noise in the ACC. And so uh, I think I think on – both fronts, there's there's a lot to take away from that game, and too too bad is overshadowed as much as it was by some of the other stuff. Yeah, and and listen, I, I think it's a program building win for uh, Mario and and Miami. I don't know that they're actually uh, that they've arrived yet. Um, you know, we could have, we could talk, and we don't have time really about you know where Clemson sits, but Florida State certainly seems like they're playing really 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 well in the ACC. But man, it's a it's definitely kind of a program building or a program moment for Mario in year two with Miami. So, um, and I think by the way, it's year six, if I'm right for Jimbo, um, it is got that big extension, you know, it was 10 years, 75 million when he was hired, he got a big extension to, to what, 10 more years or, you know, extending it out to 10 years, 95 million back in mm-hmm. 22, what, just a year ago or so. Cause they right thought LSU was going to come in and hire him. So they wanted to be proactive and they gave him yeah, the kind of cash. But that, hey, listen that, to, that George makes now. I think right that, that kind of yeah, very George. very similar to what I make. Yeah, um, you know, he he makes in in an hour <laughs> what the three of us make in a year combined. But uh, that's another story. Um, and you know, and by the way, it it'll be interesting if in Aggie Land they go eight and four. How what that looks like because there are some people that could buy him out. We could get into that later. Um, before we go. Out of the first half, though, and we're missing so many pieces of great things that happen. We we have to talk about what broke uh, early this morning, late last night. USA Today, my former employers, had a uh, uh, a news report that um, uh, that Michigan State has been investigating. It had a Title IX investigation ongoing with Coach Mel Tucker um, because of Brenda Tracy, who's a 
a sex abuse survivor and an activist who's fairly well known, known in the college football space from having told her story to various teams through the years. And she's accused him of basically, um, well, I mean, sexually harassing him during a phone conversation sometime last year. Now, now Mel Tucker has denied it, according to the reports and the investigations. But after the USA Today report came out, Michigan State suspended Mel Tucker without pay today. And we're recording this Sunday evening. Um, Mark D'Antonio is going to come back and help in a sort of a um, – you know, some sort of capacity as an assistant coach. They've got one of the assistants is going to uh, move up and become uh, the interim head coach. And it certainly looks an awful lot like this is one of these coaching suspensions. I mean, when it's without pay, it feels a little bit like it could be the prelude to a termination. There's some sort of a hearing in October. And so we don't know anything. All of these are allegations, but it's definitely a, uh, a terrible story to have break. Um, any, any thoughts, reactions to that, Chris, Brad? <clears throat> you know, I, I feel having done this for a long time when these things happen, maybe I'm different than a lot of people I always feel badly for the players of the team now, cause they're going to, they're going to be the ones that have to answer questions about this. Yeah. The, you know, the, the interim coach, and I guess, I don't know how much Mark will talk to the, the media since he's coming back, but players are going to be asked about this. And, and that's, that's a tough position to be in when you're 19 and 20 and 21 and don't have a, a darn thing to do with it. So I, that's, that's my first thought. Second, it's embarrassing uh, to the university, uh, Mel, his family. Um, and I think the third thing is this is not news to administration there at Michigan state. They, they've, they've known about this. And yet when it gets out there publicly through the USA today report, then they choose to suspend him you know, without pay. So what did anything change? Didn't sound like anything changed other than the fact that it became, um, it was out there for public consumption. Yes. I, that's, that's my thought too. And, and they, they had a, took three questions in an impromptu press conference or, or a hastily called, I guess, not, not impromptu press conference, uh, earlier this afternoon. Again, we're recording this Sunday evening, um, and deflected, didn't really answer the question about why now, because everybody can sort of see why now, which really doesn't make things look very good. Um, doesn't make Michigan State. And let's keep in mind, Michigan State has a history of, of issues, going back to Larry Nasser, um, you know, it, w- of sexual abuse sort of related things. Uh, and so this is not a university where this is uh, – by the way, I don't think it matters that it's, it would be the first time. My point is this is a university that has had all sorts of issues one way or another over the last few years. Um, so it's, it's also a bad look for them to, Hey, let's suspend him now and act like, well, you know, we just have always been thinking about whether we should spend, suspend him or not. So Brad, quick takeaway on, on, on this story. Obviously we, we won't know much more going forward for a while, perhaps. You know, I, I would just say that, you know, with, with Brenda Tracy and, uh, the subject matter that she is addressing and, and, you know, the reason for her involvement with teams like Michigan state, um, it, it's a, a very serious and important thing. And, um, Michigan state just needs, you know, to, to do the work and get it right. You know, if there's something to this, then, then obviously, uh, something big needs to happen. Um, but just get it right. And so, um, that, that's, that's all I can say is, is whoever's, whoever's doing the investigation. Um, I just, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that they're, they're, 
doing everything the way that it should be done. And uh, at this point, I think there's way too much attention on it for it to just go away as, as it might have 10 years ago. Um, so um, I, I feel pretty confident that, uh, that the, the right thing is ultimately going to be done, even if it maybe is, is achieved in a long and winding way. One thing I'd add quickly, not that money is ever much of an issue in college football. Oh, by the way, he's owed more than $70 million. So you think maybe possibly Michigan State might want to sort of look and see that there's a way they could get out of having to pay Mel Tucker $70-some million and fire for cause? I mean, that you think that's yeah, lost cause, anybody's yeah. mind there in Lansing? Uh, it might have. It might have. Um, well, look, uh, this is probably not the way we wanted to end the first half, but we need to get to the locker room for a quick break. And we could have talked about so much more. We say this every week, but we definitely could have. And we've taken way too much time. So Chris Lowe is our guest from ESPN.com. I'm George Schroeder. He's Brad Edwards. We're going to go to the locker room, take a quick break. When we come back the second half, we're going to talk faith with Chris Lowe of ESPN.com. Faith in college football on the other side. Welcome back into the second half of Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith and college football podcast brought to you by Subsplash, the leading engagement platform for your ministry. You can book a demo at subsplash.com slash SBC. When you use that link, you'll get a special discount for churches, but you have to use that link for the discount. Again, that's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash SBC. So those of you who listen to this podcast regularly know that uh, we do two halves here, just like a football game. First half we just went through is football, and now we get into the faith section or the faith half of our podcast. And just a reminder, we are joined here by Chris Lowe, senior writer for ESPN. And uh, before we get back to Chris, though, uh, it is time for our weekly segment, On My Heart, which is brought to you by our partner, Legacy Way. Our On My Heart segment uh, with Legacy Way, giving glory, excuse me, giving glory to God by sharing his love through generosity. Find out more at LegacyWay.org. So, uh, George, what is on your heart this week? Well, man, this comes from uh, a place of, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm now serving in a church in Arvada, Colorado. Super happy to be here. Um, but last week, our pastor um, preached, and I promise you, he he said, hey, I've been wanting to preach this for a while, but it's pretty clear that it had something to do with Labor Day, right? So a week ago, he preached this, and I've been thinking about it all week long. He preached from Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Come to me, Jesus is saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I've been thinking about that for like a week now, right? School's back in session and summer's over and and Labor Day is sort of the last time we all sort of take a breath and rest and then it seems like things crank up. And and I kind of always wondered to myself, did I actually get any rest this summer? And sometimes sometimes it's like I don't I don't know that I did or I'm still tired or whatever and I find myself just so busy. But 
Here's what I wanted to highlight. So the, our pastor's name is JT English, tremendous young pastor. I'm super happy to serve with him. He said this, and he said a whole lot more, but this stuck with me. True rest, he said, is not found in seeking independence from the burdens of the world. That's what we typically think of, right? That's what rest is. It's sort of going to the beach and just letting it all go, and Chris not returning texts for a while or whatever it is, right? And and I know how hard that is, Okay. But true rest is not found in seeking independence from the burdens of the world. True rest, he said, is found in depending on the person who created the world. So despite whatever your circumstances are, whether you're actually getting that physical or mental rest and that sort of de-stressing time, true rest, Jesus says, but true rest um, is found in depending on the person who created the world. And of course, that's Jesus. So my question is, where are you seeking your rest today? And are you finding it? And so I want to tell you this. Jesus says back in those verses that I read a minute ago that he offers rest basically to those who are lost and weary and broken. And a couple of a couple of chapters earlier in the end of Matthew 9 to um, people that are uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He has companion on, I'm sorry, compassion on them and he offers them rest. Okay, so that's one thing. So if you don't know Christ... Man, I, I want to tell you how to do that. And if you will hit me up in DMs at Twitter at George Schroeder, if you will, um, if you'll email us, and I'll give you the email address at the end of the pod. We want to talk to you about that. But it's also true for those of us who are already followers of Christ. We can find ourselves just sort of burdened and stressed and everything else, and looking for that sort of de-stressing time and wondering why we didn't have enough vacation time. And my question is, are you seeking rest in Christ? Are you seeking that? Because true rest, as our pastor, J.T. English said, true rest is not found in seeking independence from the burdens of the world. True rest is found in depending on that person, Jesus, who created the world. So that's been on my heart for the last week or so. And and so I'm grateful to Legacy Way for um, sponsoring that segment. Y'all, Jesus is here to give you rest. Amen. And, you know, George, it, it kind of strikes me, listen to that, that what it's saying is that true rest is not physical rest. It's kind of psychological, emotional rest. And, and the, yeah, spiritual yeah, rest, spiritual really, rest. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's where, I mean, I, I think you're right on, which is that most of us, um, that's where our burdens really are. It, it's not that the body gets worn down, although certainly sometimes it does, but most of the burdens that we carry are are just feeling overwhelmed um, by by maybe what we need to do or what we think we need to do, right? In order to be successful. And um, I know that gets to me still on a regular basis. And um, thank you for, for sharing that because that's something I need to, to spend some time thinking about. Well, um, you know, I do this podcast for you, Brad, <laughs> and I'm kidding. That's, we do it together and we regularly encourage each other. So uh, but Chris Lowe is our guest, and Chris, thank you for sitting patiently as we've sort of as we rolled through that. But but um, one of the things I love about you, as you and I got to know each other through the years when I was on the college football beat, is that we share faith in Jesus. And so I am so grateful that you would not only come and give us sort of your take on what happened in college football, because we know that you're in the middle of the sport, 
paying attention to it, but that you'd be willing to come with us on this second half of the podcast, and and which is obviously the faith half or the, or the gospel half of Gridiron and the Gospel. So thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, I guess I would just ask you this. You mentioned at the top, story, you mentioned a story you're working on Marshall 50th anniversary, I think, of the plane crash that obviously, um, you know, changed the trajectory of, 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 of that program or whatever, but it was such a terrible tragedy. And, and I mentioned, we want to talk about those kinds of stories. I want to talk about your faith here in a minute. And, but what I really love to know to start with is this, as a college football journalist, and Brad sort of alluded to this in the first half, do you go looking, and this is, and the, the story you're talking about, the Marshall story, probably isn't sort of an overt sharing of the gospel, but do you go looking for stories that sort of, I don't know, they're, they're encouraging, sometimes they have some sort of redemptive value, even if and when they don't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily about someone's Christian faith or that kind of thing? Without question. I mean, I always, and, and no, we know as as journalists that's not always the case. You you can't you, in every story you do, whether you're reporting a story or working on some type of feature. Sometimes it's you know it's just not possible to do that. But guys, I, celebrating God's goodness to me is something that I beat myself up on a lot. That that I don't do enough of that. That it, as Christians, I mean it. It's out there every single day. And in some, it's so many subtle ways you see God at work, you know, and it could be, you know, an elderly lady, you know, not able to get her groceries in her trunk. I was at the grocery store and and some young kid coming up and helping her, you know, get her just something as little as that, you know, and I don't think we look hard enough. I'm certainly guilty of that. We look hard enough. For his goodness, and and I think when when it when it's a it's incumbent upon us as Christians to celebrate that, and I think as part of what we do as journalists, if if you can do that, then absolutely uh, I, I look to do that. Accentuate the positive, accentuate what's inspiring, accentuate um, you know that that he's always working, <laughs> whether we see it or not, and oftentimes we don't see it. You know we. we and I, I know there's been so many times in my life when I don't know I could be having the worst day, the best day. Uh, I could be, you know, walking in neglect, which I've done far too much in my life. And I turn around and right there's Christ. I mean, he's right there at, at when you least expect him to be there. And I think being able to share those type of experiences or stories that reflect that, um, that's absolutely something that I always look forward to trying to tell those types of stories. Those are my favorite ones to do. Yeah. So along those lines, Chris, um, I, I know I worked for ESPN for 25 years. I know they're not in the business of promoting any faith. Um, so you're, they're not sending you out there to do stories about, you know, on a, on a Christian angle of something. But um, I, I know that you have to come across those Um just in the scope of doing your regular work on college football, um, how often do you, whether it's a coach or a player, um, are, are you kind of surprised when you go out to talk to someone and whether it's something that you see 
on the wall or on a desk in a coach's office or something that is 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 shared either on or off the record by someone. How often are you uh, kind of caught off guard that someone is a Christian and shares that um, in the process of talking to you about college football? You know, in this world of, of social media and the immediacy of everything and haven't done it, I, and I'm just an old guy. I've been doing it for a long time. I think a lot of people know about my faith and they know that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm proud to say so. And I'm always wanting to share, you know, my story and my faith. So a lot of people already know that. So maybe it would be not completely truthful to say, well, they just bring it up to bring it up. They may bring it up because they already know it. You know, a lot of coaches, as you guys know, certainly are creatures of habit and, and they, want to be around and talk to people they've known for a long time or dealt with, uh, administrators, people like that. So, but no, I, it does come up a lot, Brad. I mean, a lot of, a lot of conversations, a lot of interviews. Um, I oftentimes go, uh, when I'm at a, a, a practice in the preseason or, or even the, uh, the spring, you know, teams win players, position groups, when practice with a prayer and, that's you know I, I think that probably happens a lot more than people realize, it, it, all over the country, Midwest, the South, uh, I've seen it all, I've seen it everywhere, so uh, I, I guess I'm not surprised. I, I, I see it, I hear it, we talk about it, uh, we talk about uh, all. I tell you what, we talk a lot. I talk to a lot of coaches and players about sort of our growth, our journey with Christ, and where we grew up, the church we grew up in as kids, and our memories as a kid going to church. Cause I don't know about you guys, man, but in my house as a kid, when the doors of that church were open, we were there. It was <laughs> a totalitarian right. government in my <laughs> house. It was not a democracy, you know, and, it, and, and I thank God every day for that. My mom's gone now, That's right. but I thank God. There were times when, when, you know, at four o'clock on Sundays and we had, you know, youth group on Sunday nights that the, Cowboys and Redskins were tied at the half and she had to drag me out of the house to get me to youth group. And, uh, and I, but boy, you know, I, I might not have been real happy about it at the time, but just planting that seed, that seed in Christ as a kid, even though that seed maybe didn't sprout as, as well as it should have in the twenties, my twenties or thirties. I honestly, mm-hmm. I think God every day for that for my mom and dad. And, and I, I think about her, she's been gone eight years now. And man, I, my mom and dad were the best at, at, uh, at living a sermon and not preaching it. And I, I am so grateful for that. Matt, I, I love to hear that. And I, I know that about your story, uh, but I love that. And um, that's, that's a little bit of Brad's story, a little bit of my story as well. We both grew up with, with parents who are, are, uh, Christ followers were in the in the church um, every time the doors are open a little bit like that and then came came to Christ uh, later in life or 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 God really got a hold of us uh, a little bit you know in our 20s or whatever and, and you with you it was a little bit later so I, I love to hear that um, so and I didn't ask this farewell earlier but one of the things you you said um, or you didn't say but it sort of struck me um, let me just back up and just try this again. So I, I've been teaching a class uh, the last year and a half at Baylor uh, in journalism. It's an intro to journalism class or intro to mass media. And it's one of the cooler things that I've gotten to do. Um, really enjoyed doing it. Um, 
one of the things I try to teach those guys is this. There's sort of like the Society of Professional Journalists ethics, code of ethics, right? And there's all these things that you really want to adhere to a very high standard when you do journalism. And we're no exception to that. We really want to do that. But I hope and I pray, and I try to teach the students this, that I did this and I hope they'll do this, that you start with seeing people, subjects of stories, readers, everybody, viewers, whatever, as made in God's image. And that includes the tough stories. That includes the difficult stories. That includes the stories that are about guys doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, and so I just wonder how does that, I know you have the same view of people as made in God, God's image. It's not just a view. It's just true. We are made in God's image, right? It's Genesis 1. Um, how does that inform your work as a journalist for ESPN? That's verbatim the way I look at it. Um, I, I think of, uh, and who is my neighbor? I, I think of that all the time. It, you know, is it the guy that votes the same way you do? that his yard is pristine or his yard has got three feet of weeds in his yard? Is it the guy that um, maybe that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you, you don't know that well? Um, I think if you go to my, my Twitter bio right now, there's a verse, Titus 2.11, you know, and, and I think of that all the time. It, God's grace that bring the salvation hath appeared to all men. And it, it, you know, it's never too late. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday, 20 years ago. I mean, he's always there. He's always right there beside you. And I think we all, I know I've been guilty so many times in my life of getting caught up on what maybe I've done or didn't do, or the circumstances you guys were talking about circumstances around you earlier. I mean, it's, I, 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 I try to recite that every morning to myself. No matter who I meet, where I find them, um, it, it's just amazing some of the relationships and some of the people that I've met over the years that felt like, well, and, and I've I felt like this in my time in my life, that, well, what I've done or the way I've walked and neglect for so long, God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. You know, Christ, you know, no, it's, it's exactly the opposite. You know, he's right there. He never, you know, we might leave. We may get off the path or get off track. He never does. He's right there with us the whole time. So, George, yes, That's right. difficult stories, uh, kids who've had difficult situations, coaches, um, redemptive-type stories. Uh, I love telling those because I think it's, it's, it's certainly proof, not that we need it, that, that he's always there and he's always working. And I think those are things that as I go out and look for those types of stories, because we, I love to tell stories. That's the favorite part of my job. I mean, I've, I'm competitive. I love to break stories. I love to go report news. Uh, I think, you know, it's always going to be an information business. Has to, I used to have a buddy that said, you, you can't write your way out of second place. Meaning if you can break news and you're a news gatherer and you can consistently be right and correct uh, and fair and balanced when it comes to news, you're probably Hopefully, I mean, I'm close to 60 now, so they, who knows, you know, <laughs> who knows when they're going to put me out to pasture, but hopefully you always have a job in this profession, but telling stories, I mean, there's nothing like that, especially the, 
the redemptive stories and, and people who've overcome, who've pushed through, and they've done so because they've not tried to do it on their own. They've let Christ open the door for them and do it. Uh, let me say one thing. Chris, you are a tremendous storyteller, and you do break news well, but I love the stories that you tell. So I just wanted to say that. So, um, And Brad, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm impinging on your time, so I apologize, but I, I felt like I wanted to say that. No, I'm, I'm glad you did, because that was a good way to kind of wrap it up. I was just about to thank Chris for giving us his time, not only to talk college football, but also to, to share uh, about his faith as he did. And let him know it is now time to get back to college football. So uh, the way that we end this podcast every week is with our picks. And this week's picks are presented by Betterman. Betterman is calling an audible. They're giving men an easy-to-use playbook, a timeless strategy for how to win as a man. A free resource for small and large groups. Betterman is perfect for any gathering. Check them out at betterman.com. So in season... We pick the best games, and usually our guests will too. And not to put any pressure on you at all, Chris Lowe, but um, our our guests in the first three weeks have been pretty good at the picks. So um, it's up to you to, to what, what he means is better than us. <laughs> better than us, that is for sure. <laughs> That's what he means. Yeah. So, so you could definitely continue that trend because our. our yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. The, the challenge is not in being better than us. The challenge is in keeping up with the previous guest pickers. So um, uh, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna start throwing them out at you here one at a time. So we'll go in this order. Chris, you go first, and then George will go, and then I'll um, I'll put an end to it and uh, move on to the next game. But we're gonna start with Kansas State at Missouri. Are you gonna be up first, right? And yep. I'm first. Up first. Okay. It's all it's yep. the pressure's on you. I'll start. Chris Kleiman, to me, one of the more underrated coaches in college football. What he did in North Dakota State was incredible. Just love to see a guy on that level get a shot at the big time. Missouri struggled. I think Kansas State wins big in that one. Yeah, listen, I think that's right. Missouri, um, man, listen, I keep thinking they're going to put something together, but they just sort of – I don't know, they're just – I don't know. I'm not going to say it. K-State, uh, Chris Kleiman. Uh, I didn't think anybody could improve upon what sort of Bill Snyder had built at K-State. But if anything, Chris Kleiman has improved upon it. Now, he built upon the foundation that Bill Snyder built and then rebuilt. Don't get me wrong. But Chris Kleiman has taken them to a whole nother level, which I wasn't sure they could get to. And obviously, they actually won the Big 12 last year. We don't even think about that. And I forgot now, about that last week, and you correct Yes, me. you did. That'd be yeah. a good trivia yeah. question right now to ask people who won the Big 12. Who? And most people would say TCU. Yeah, that's, that's, right. what I, that's what I fell for. Yep. And we can talk about Texas all you want. We're, we're inevitably going to talk about Oklahoma, you know, you know, if they keep winning and that kind of thing. Um, there'll be some other flavors of the month, whatever. All K-State does is continue to just – they you have to pack a lunch – and then they come and they beat you because they're fundamentally sound. They look like those Bill Snyder teams. Uh, so I'll, I'll go K-State. George, if it wasn't a pick segment, I might uh, get into a little conversation, if not an argument with you about whether he has surpassed Bill Snyder. Because I'm thinking of like um, Bill Snyder first go round, like 1990s, mid, mid to late 90s K-State. Um, oh, they were really good. Yeah, I don't, no question. I don't know they're quite – 
back to that level yet because no. of the consistency. Uh-huh. It wasn't just that they finished in the top 10 once. It was they were a fixture in the top 10 for that that's for a fair. While. But that's um, fair. but anyway, just to wrap this one up, I agree with both of you. I think K-State is just the better team. Venue isn't going to matter. Um, K-State uh, wins easily. Uh, next game for you, Chris. In the SEC, LSU at Mississippi State. LSU, I uh, spent some time in Baton Rouge, too, this preseason. And they're, they're really talented. Uh, I think it's um, to see the way that game against Florida State went and Florida State sort of dominating the latter part of that game and finishing it. You, you come away thinking, okay, is LSU a disappointment or is Florida State Mike Norvell, who, by the way, to me, just to sort of get off tangent a little bit, when you start talking about patience in college football and hanging in there and continuing to believe in what you do, Mike Norvell and Florida State's a great example of that. I mean, they were on his butt those first couple of years. Those were bad football teams. And he continued to build, he continued to stay the course, and you look at their personnel, and they've got a great football team. So – I think that was more Florida State. I still think LSU is a very talented football team. Uh, I think they beat Mississippi State. Mississippi State uh, just coming off – I mean, I can't imagine coming off what they had to come off last year, losing their head coach, Mike Leach. Um, Zach Arnett, a first-year coach, I think he's going to do well there. LSU is just a better football team, and I think they win this game. Yeah, I, I don't really think there's a whole lot of analysis there for me either. By the way – um, there are going to be a lot of weeks that have a lot better games than this, and we probably should have said that at the top. <laughs> that also, that also, here's what that means. That means I'm going to come back and eat my words next week. I know how college football works, but as on on the you know on the outset of week three, it doesn't doesn't look like there's a bunch a ton of great games. So um, LSU, and I think LSU rolls because because uh, I think LSU is going to get untracked. And I think we started to see that um, this last weekend, but they're going to get untracked. Uh, they may not be what we thought they were going to be, but I think they're going to roll. All right. Um, I, I'm going to make it, uh, once again, the clean sweep. I'm going to go with LSU. But I will just say that um, in, I don't know how long it's been, the last at least 10 years or so, this has typically been an early season matchup, as it is this year. And at least for some of those less Miles and Ed Ogeron teams, this was a really good indicator of what LSU was. This game, this is really one, you know one of those first tries. Like you said, they already played Florida State. We we know they're they don't look like a national title contender at the moment. But as to whether this could end up being a disappointing season, I, I think we'll find out um, this weekend if it's going to be. Um, I do like LSU, but with this game being in Starkville, we'll see. We'll see because it is a. Um, it is a challenging place to play, especially um, early in the year when you're not, you haven't quite figured out exactly how different Mississippi State is yet. And maybe they've been saving something. I don't know. But, uh, but I am also going to go with LSU like the two of you. All right. How about BYU at Arkansas? Yeah, that's poor old Sam Pippen. Who's been putting together his schedules the last couple of years? <laughs> Yeah, what do you have last year? It's Cincinnati. Um, I know we had BYU look last at, year also. And you look at the, the the stretches they have to play. I think there's a stretch this year, if I'm not mistaken, where they play four straight games against SEC opponents away from home. Now, one of those is in Arlington, 
uh, against Texas yeah, A&M. That's that's their fault on that yeah, one. No, but I, yes, I agree. you're right. Yeah, some of you know to, to go out last year and play BYU. Their schedules, I think, the last two or three years have been as as tough as anybody's in college football. Uh, I think the only one maybe tough for Florida schedule this year is brutal. Um, I think again Arkansas, new offensive coordinator, uh, getting KJ Jefferson back, Rocket Sanders to me one of the more underrated running backs in college football, catches the football well. Uh, I think at home, uh, the, the combination of those two, both of them have played a lot of big football games. I'm not sure where BYU is. I don't think this is as good a BYU team as maybe we've seen over the last few years come all the way across the country to play, or most of the way. I think Arkansas holds uh, home court advantage and wins this one. Yeah, I keep wanting to do a not so fast, my friend. Like, but I I can't pull that off. I, I agree with you. Uh, the only question mark, and I don't think this matters ultimately, is whether Rocket Sanders is going to play because he didn't play against Kent State. I don't think they know that he's going if he's going to play or not. And you know, not only was he great last year, he actually he had like almost 200 yards rushing last year in Provo when they uh, when they basically outscored BYU. This is. I don't know how good this Arkansas team is yet. I don't think we can really tell. But BYU is just okay. This is a bad year for them to move into the Big 12. There have been other years when they've been better. Um, so I'll go Arkansas. Okay, once again, I mean, this is, we're, not, we're not very exciting here. I'm going to go Arkansas <laughs> because of the home field. All right? That's all right. You know, um, but, but I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think I know a little bit more about BYU and – and and that they are not what they were in in the last couple of years, and uh, and that to me is enough to to you know not take them on the road. So, all right, it's time. I think we're gonna get I think we're gonna get differences of opinion here, but I'm I'm not positive. We're going backyard brawl, old school Pittsburgh, West Virginia. Chris Lowe, <clears throat> have they already started burning couches? Where's where's this game played? It's, it's in Morgantown, Morgantown, right? Huh? Yep. Yeah. Milan Pushkar Stadium. One, one, of, the more, one of the more it, underrated it, rivalries. Yeah, one of the I've more underrated rivalries in college football. Uh, two fan bases that I don't think they like each other a whole lot. And um, in one of those games that's been in, – in another one of those rivalries that even though they're not the same conference – Boy, you sure would, and I'm, I'm a traditionalist. You sure would like to see this one played every year. Uh, just, I just, gosh, guys, it seeing, and I, I know I'm getting off tangent again, but you know, I, as a kid, seeing Nebraska and Oklahoma play every year, and all of a sudden they don't play every year. I mean, that remember that Friday after every Thanksgiving they played. That's the part of all this moving and shuffling in college football that gets to me. You know, some of these 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 great games that are part of the fabric of college football aren't played every year. Um, this is a hard one. This, this is this, the, this is a t- – of the ones we picked, to me, this is the one that is probably the biggest toss-up. I think Pittsburgh is a little bit more physical. I like the fact that um, defensively under Pat Narduzzi, of course, Pat's background begins and ends with, with defense going back all the way you know, back to his Michigan State days there with, with Antonio. I think because of that, they're a little bit better up front defensively and are able to dictate the flow of this game, and they come away with the win. 
You, you know, everything you say makes all the sense in the world, but because it's the backyard brawl and maybe because we need some like <laughs> tension in this room, this, uh, this podcast room, we're all sitting together in virtually. Um, look, I, I sit here and I look at what West Virginia has done. I understand that they're in, that, that Neil Brown is in, in real trouble probably as you know, if they don't, if they don't do a lot and I don't see them doing a lot this year. Um, you know they opened the season with the with the loss at Penn State. Um, they beat Duquesne. That doesn't tell me much, but I'm going to go West Virginia in an upset because this is one of those weird situations. Uh, you know it'll be a it'll be a uh, night game, and at least the sun will set and it'll get weird in Morgantown. So let's go with West Virginia. All right, I'm going with George. I, I want to see some couches burn, although I won't actually be there to see them burn. But, I don't no. want to see couches burn. <laughs> Let me just start with that. Um, no, I mean, this is, like you said, Chris, this is one of those great rivalries that most people around the country, especially like the younger ones, because they haven't seen it on an annual basis like like we did growing up. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, and I just, I have a, a weird feeling, as George pointed out, weird things happen in Morgantown and especially at night. So, so going with the Mountaineers here and um, we finally have a difference of opinion. If, right. if I'm wrong, yeah. if I'm wrong, guys, Saturday night, I will blast. I mean, completely blast John Denver country, country roads. roads. There you How go. That? <laughs> in my neighborhood. All right. And uh, I imagine you got a lot of John Denver fans in your neighborhood anyway, so they probably oh, yeah. didn't mind too much. Right. So um, last game, and I, I don't think we're going to have a difference of opinion here, but maybe, maybe somebody will surprise us. Tennessee at Florida. What do you think, Chris? Can I go back to John Denver quickly? I won a, <laughs> a, a trivia contest on this a few years ago. Yeah. Most people think of John Denver, all these great folksy songs. You guys remember the movie you played in? The, the lead role? No. No. Oh, God. Did he really? Sure oh, did. actually, I, yeah. I, I don't even remember what the movie was about, but now that you well, mentioned first it. First of all, it shows how old I It's been like 40 yeah. years ago. And um, he was um, he was in that. But, yeah, that's just a little bit of trivia there. Um, Tennessee, Florida. <laughs> I uh, we come to the pod, Chris. <laughs> yeah. All this useless information that I've stored. No, that's, that's not right. what I meant. It's all good. <laughs> um, Tennessee has a one in Florida in 20 years, 2003. The Vols have sort of haven't been around this rivalry. In fact, I had a chance to talk to Coach Spurrier tonight. Has seemingly found ways to lose this game, and the Gators have found ways to win it. Even when Tennessee had some just NFL-laden rosters going way back into the 90s. Uh, I just, you know, when I look at Florida's personnel right now, and, and I think it's crazy to try to assess Billy Napier two games into his second year. Any coach, that's just not fair, you know. Yeah, they looked awful against Utah. They don't look very, you know, certainly I don't think you can get any kind of measurement by McNeese State. But they're just not where they need to be to win at a high level right now in the SEC from a personnel standpoint. I think they're going to get there. They seem to be recruiting better. But Tennessee can just score and score. Tennessee's coming off a sloppy game, too, against Austin P. But if you're going to beat Tennessee typically, you're going to have to score 35 or 40 points. And I just don't know if the Gators can score that many points. 
I do think it's, you know, when you look at the betting line on this game, it's what, four, five, six points. Uh, I think Tennessee is able to sort of pull away because they just are going to be able to outscore the Gators and win for the first time in two decades. The coach of that Florida team, while we're on this trivia kick, was who? The 2000. Which one? Uh, Zook. 2000. Head Ron coach Zook. Of Florida in 2003. Ron Zook. Ron Zook, the Zooker. That's right. Ron Zook, the Zooker. That is the first reference to Ron Zook on the podcast, so I should <laughs> ring the bell. Last for a right while too. Yeah, could be. Uh, yeah, listen, Chris, uh, I, I, there's something about it being played in Gainesville that gives me pause. Uh, and Tennessee, okay, uh, you know, I get it. Um, you know, they've done what you're supposed to do. They did mess around with Austin P. As you said, I think they were sloppy. I agree with that. Man, I can't get over how Florida looked. Now, they were on the road in the mountain time zone at Utah, but it's a Utah team without a starting quarterback, by the way, um, and a Utah team that then struggled against the Baylor team that the jury's out on this this week uh, or the, yesterday. It's hard for me to pick Florida, even, even with the history, even with it being in Gainesville, so I'm going to go Tennessee. And I'm going to go Tennessee exactly because of what Chris said. It's the same logic I used last week to take Colorado over Nebraska, which is that Nebraska has a hard time scoring points and Colorado doesn't. <laughs> and 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 you're yeah, I mean the whole thing is you're going to have to score to beat Colorado this year. You're going to have to score to beat Tennessee as Chris pointed out and I even at home, I don't have a lot of confidence in Florida being able to put up those kind of points. So well, that, this is disappointing, guys. Four of the five games were unanimous, but we're just um, boring old guys. Just boring you know, old men, right? Chris, if all if all the favorites win, Chris will keep uh, keep pace with the uh, the previous guest pickers and and their their dominance of us. So, uh, good luck to you, Chris. But hey, for, hey, thanks hey again. for the record, I looked it up. <laughs> 19, 1977, the release date of Oh God, George Burns and John Denver, the two co stars in that epic film. Wow. Epic is is one way to describe it. So there you go. All right, uh, listen, y'all. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us, man. We could have talked so long. By the way, um, again, we have to thank our picks partner, Better Man, right? But we could have talked so long, so long, um, and we have talked too long. So, Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time on a Sunday night. I know how busy you are during college football season, so I really am grateful that you would take the time to do that. Not, not too busy to talk to you guys, and uh, thank you for doing this show, and thank you for uh, for sharing uh, Christ's light. Because I think we, you know, we, we I look again, I look back through through my journey, and I look ahead, and I know what He's meant to me, and I just appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity to to share what He's meant to me and, and my entire family. But thank you guys, and God bless you and everybody that tunes in. Well, Chris, I'm grateful for you and for um, the way you cover college football. So thank you. Um, and Brad, I'm just going to go ahead and close this on out, right? So thanks to Better Man for sponsoring our picks. Thanks to Legacy Way for sponsoring On My Heart. And thank you, as always, especially to our presenting sponsor, Subsplash. Subsplash is so much more than just a church software. It brings people together, empowers giving, fosters discipleship, and transforms lives. Book a demo today at subsplash.com slash SBC. And when you use that link, you get a special discount for churches, but you do have to use that link for the discount. And again, it's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash SBC, subsplash.com slash SBC. 
And and I should always remind you, uh, folks, for li- uh, thanks for listening. But I need to remind you to visit us, visit us online at gridironandthegospel.com. Find us on Twitter or Instagram at gridiron underscore gospel, at gridiron underscore gospel. Email us, and I mentioned that earlier in the On My Heart segment. Email us at gridirongospelpod at gmail.com. And be sure, y'all, to rate, review, and subscribe to Gridiron and the Gospel Podcast in your favorite podcast app. We're on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you guys will tune in next week for more, uh, there's always something going on in college football, and we'd love to talk with you then. Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith in college football podcast, is a BP sports production.